Hello listeners and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week we bring you the newly updated Suzuki GSX S1000S. Suzuki has updated their Naked Lita bike upright with several fairly significant upgrades and senior editor Nick DeSena tells us all about it. In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey sits down at the Barber Advanced Design Center at the Barber Museum in Birmingham, Alabama and chats with Brian Slark. He is the gentleman who, among other things, brought Norton Motorcycles to America. This is the first part of three and gives us the introduction to Brian and how he got started in motorcycling. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, it's a solid bike. You know, it's, it's been in the Suzuki for a number of years now. Uh, I would say it was one of the longest standing upright naked sport bikes that uh, do not receive any sort of love in the update department. Um, you know, if we think back, it was originally introduced in 2015 and it's had, you know, a, a fair little bit of uh, minor updates here and there over the years with, you know, graphics and colors and, um, you know, just little tweaks for various standards and things like that, but not a true change of any kind, really, um, until 2022. And now it's getting a, a nice little refresh on the sort of uh, 5 GSXS R1000 engine. So the, uh, the same uh, 909 CC inline four motor that dates back to the K5 Jixer. Um, and, uh, you know, they've updated the looks significantly, and that's probably the most obvious change for the 2022 GSX S1000. Uh, in the States, it is a 2022. Um, and there's a couple other little changes here and there with some electronic goodies and whatnot to try to bring it up to snuff with some of the, the competitors in that class, which is probably one of the most hotly contested classes at the moment. Uh, but by and large, it's the same bones that date back to you know the 15 era bike. And when you're talking about just a solid upright naked bike, the GSXS is still hanging tough. So that's where we're at. This is basically the sort of the same uh, 1000cc Screamer motor that's based on the 2005 GSX-R1000. Yeah, yeah, and, and that motor, despite its age, I mean, it's, you know, a little over 17 years old. It, it'll be able to vote soon and, you know, <laughs> things like that. So um, it's, it's, it has been updated over the years because this engine has been used in a variety of motorcycles and especially recently when you think about the gsx s 1000 now it's uh in the gsx s uh, 1000 gt and gt plus i believe um so it it's it's been recycled you know as manufacturers do right well it's i mean it, it's the same basic architecture with essentially the slightly longer stroke motor so that, that was why they based it on that architecture so you'd have a slightly more torquey motor yeah with the current generation uh first off it, it now has ride by wire throttle so 
that opens the doors to uh, various writing modes and whatnot, of which you have three. But before we dive into that, there are some changes we should just cover for you know the sake of uh, historical record. We'll say, you know, new on deck. There's there's a whole lot of changes to the K5 engine. Um, with uh, manufacturing processes and things like that. And we saw that with a Hayabusa as well. You know, by any definition, there are a lot of different things that are going into it when you compare it to any of the previous iterations. But for our purposes, and what we can actually feel on the street, is you have uh, new cams. Uh, they change the overlap timings and things like that. You have new cam chain, valve spring, springs, uh, new air box. Um, and then they also narrowed the throttle bodies, which are borrowed from the new V-Strom 1050. Now, those are sort of the, the core changes. Again, I, there's a lot to cover in the fine print with you know, machining processes and things like that. But for us and what we can feel from the saddle, that's here and over there. Um, and uh, you, know, you might be wondering about horsepower, because obviously those things will impact horsepower. This new engine, despite its age, that's kind of an impressive feat to me, is um, it meets Euro 5 emissions compliance. Yeah, you're still getting um, claimed 150 uh, horsepower at 11,000 RPM. So it is 1,000 RPM later than before. And we lost just a touch of torque. It's like a foot, a foot or two of torque or something like that. And now peak torque does arrive a little bit earlier. So that's sort of the, the mindset of this engine. It's not really trying to play with the high horsepower European bikes, um, you know, the Street Fighter V4s and KTM Super Duke cars and things like that. Its mindset is not aimed in that direction or really a, a racetrack direction, I, I would say as well. It's really just focused on delivering a solid road experience, which this bike does quite well. Um, the, the, the goals with all these changes that I mentioned earlier wasn't really about teasing more horsepower. It did gain a couple horsepower, but it's really about flattening the torque curve and making a lot more mid-range accessible. So based on the dyno graphs that they showed us during tech presentations and just you know riding the bike around, that's something that I do think Suzuki achieved quite well. Um, you have this just super smooth, just right off the bottom, uh, I mean, just above idle, essentially, the engine picks up, gets you just right into this huge mid-range, um, you know, power bands that you can just play with in the corners. And when you're in the canyons, just kind of work the throttle. You can actually carry a gear taller. So it's not like a lot of these really high-strung, short-stroke inline-four motors where you have to just really keep the RPMs up. There's, there's a good amount of of uh, oomph on the bottom end with this old K5 engine. And, um, you know, that's essentially what you need on the street, right? You know, because you're not really wringing its neck constantly. Um, and so that gives it a good balance too, because you can ride it around on the street, you know, commuting to work or whatever at lower paces. And it's just totally happy to plod along. It doesn't get, you know, lumpy or jumpy at those lower RPMs. It doesn't bog or anything like that. And then when you really want to stretch its legs and, you know, play with that mid-range power and then get up into the top end, you know, you still have that as well. So we did all of our riding for this, uh, this intro out in the Malibu Canyon. So Santa Monica Mountains, that's like Payuma, uh, Mulholland, um, 
Latigo, you know, some other roads that Southern California residents will be pretty familiar with. Sure. And they're pretty tight and twisty in most cases. So having that broad power band is really important in those um, slower sections, just, just so you can just kind of set in a gear and just work the throttle and just go, go from there. And that's, that's something that I enjoyed about this bike. And, um, you know, I was kind of quite surprised about, honestly, just because I haven't ridden in K5 generation <clears throat> uh, in line four in a long time. So it's still relevant today. And it's it's still hanging in there for sure, sure. And I I think it has a lot a lot to offer in, in terms of just its uh, riding experience as well. Now that it's ride by wire throttle with riding modes, you've got presumably the sort of the three standard modes, and presumably um, you know traction control. Yeah, yeah. So the the previous bike had TC, um, and <clears throat> to dive into the electronics. This is sort of a thing that uh, it does elevate the bike a little bit above its predecessor, um, but we do need to remember that Suzuki is still going after an extremely aggressive price point of $11,299 um, in wow. the US market because we don't get the Kawasaki Z1000. Uh, the GSX S1000 is the cheapest naked leader class motorcycle in the US market. Uh, Europe, it's different because they get the Z1000 and other markets might change. But um, when you look at the electronics package, you have three adjustable ride modes, you have adjustable traction control, you do get non-adjustable ABS, and then you have some other Suzuki standard features like the, um, uh, the start assist. I can't remember their, their actual nomenclature. Oh, low RPM assist, where when you begin slipping the clutch to start, it actually raises the revs a little bit just to help you off the line um and then you have the one push start which is you just click the starter button once and and it will cycle through the the starter as much as it needs to to fire up the engine so you don't have to hold it um i actually really like that feature on motorcycles it's kind of a a feature that that a lot of people really just sort of uh you know blow by but it's surprisingly not that common and it's very cool but anyway yeah, I like it too. It's interesting, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, going back to the price point oriented uh, talk of the electronics, to help keep that, that price nice and low, it's not using an IMU. So these systems are not as sophisticated as a lot of the other offerings on the market. Um, the Gixxis and the CB1000R are actually the only two bikes in this class that aren't using IMUs. Uh, and they're also the most affordable uh, motorcycles in this class. Now, going back to the, the throttle maps, you have active, basic, and comfort. Um, active is pretty intense. It's, it's a very aggressive throttle map. Um, it, for riding on the street, uh, I would say it's a little bit too frenetic for my tastes. Um, you know, if you're a more aggressive rider and you kind of have that personality, then maybe it will appeal to you. However, they do offer, offer the basic mode, which I think is sort of the Goldilocks mode of all three. And quite frankly, I don't think I would ever really venture outside of this mode unless it was dumping rain outside. It's just very, very sporty. It's not too over the top. 
and it's pretty much good in any condition, you know, or, or I shouldn't say condition, any situation. When you're riding around town, it's not too snappy, it's not too aggressive. And when you're riding in the canyons, kind of sowing your wild oats, as, as we all do, <laughs> you know, you can have a lot of fun with it. And again, it's always just right in that, that perfectly balanced state. And that's what I really enjoy about it. Now, you also have a comfort mode, which tames things pretty heavily, put some, put some decent slack into the throttle. You know, if I were to face some bad weather, I think I'd slap it into that mode and turn up the CC. But really, in, in dry conditions, I, I don't think I'd, I'd go for that. Although I do appreciate having the option. Um, then we got to go over to the TC. Again, not IMU. <clears throat> Uh, sensing TC, so it's not lean, lean angle detecting. Um, fairly, fairly conservative, which is not unheard of for the Japanese manufacturers. Uh, you have levels one through five, one being the least aggressive, five being the most. If you keep it up in the basically anything above three, and three, three and up, I should say, it uh, doesn't necessarily cut in. It just won't really let the bike stretch its legs as we know this K5 engine can do. Uh, when you start dropping it down into levels one and two, you will get you know, a nice little modest wheel hovering or front wheel hovering, but <laughs> yeah. it, it's still kind of tugging on the reins a bit and <clears throat> then switching it off. You know, the K5 engine is, is so tractable that riding without traction control is not unheard of. And if we think back to the, the 2005 Gixxer, well, it never had that anyway. Now, ABS is a different story. Um, there's only one ABS mode and it's not defeatable. So you can't turn it off, modify it, whatever. Um, I think in a racetrack setting, it might be a little heavy handed on the street. I never really got it to engage unless I knew it was going to engage. If our listeners are familiar with some of the Malibu back roads, you know, there's a lot of huge compression bumps and, you know, things like that. So if you unload the bike while braking, you're kind of bound to trigger those systems. Um, and other, other than that sort of experience, which is a very uh, nitpicky sort of thing. And frankly, pretty much any bike will do that or car. Um, <clears throat> the the ABS for, for riding on the street, even riding aggressively, left more room on the table than, you know, I think I'd, I'd really need. So we're all good there. The other little electronic update, and this is probably the best one, is in, with regards to the gearbox. And we now have an up-down quick shifter. Nice. It also got an assistance slipper clutch, which is always appreciated. You know, when you're riding aggressively and you're backing through the gearbox, having a slipper clutch to keep wheel hop at bay is always nice. Um, the assist function of just, you know, giving an assist to actually manipulating the cable clutch, it's on the lighter side, not the lightest in the world, definitely not the heaviest by any means. Um, so that's a plus. But the big thing here is the quick shifter. That quick shifter works excellently. There's pretty much no other way to put it. It's, it, it works in a different fashion than most quick shifters where um, the sensor is placed within the linkage of the shifter. You'll often see that um, you know, on 
a wide variety of motorcycles. Uh, in this case, the, the, the sensor is built into the, the shifting linkage up at the top. And that does a couple things. One, it takes away slop from the entire you know, shifting chain. So shifting is nice and tight the entire time. And you know, the, the, the really crucial thing about this whole system is that this quick shifter works at low RPM, high RPM, whatever. And I would put it up to snuff with some of the European competition. You know, there are still a handful of European um, offerings that, that are above this, but for a bike of this price point and, you know, given the age of some of these components, getting that system to work that well is impressive. There's really no other word for that one. Um, so I, I would appreciate this quick shifter and this sort of uh, the, the tightness and precision between shifts on any motorcycle that has a quick shifter. Sort of rounding out the, the last of the electronics, I guess we'll throw the dash in there. Did get a new dash, uh, borrows it from the GSXR, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's a pretty basic LCD dash. And for me, it's a bit difficult to read, not a bit difficult to read. It's, it is difficult to read even in the best lighting situations. So you get a lot of glare. Um, the really obvious stuff you can see. So you can see miles per hour, you can see the revs, but pretty much anything else that's a little bit more nuanced, it's, it, it, it's just hard to read. Um, yeah. Again, this is one of those things where Suzuki can definitely step it up. You know, TFTs and full color TFTs are not exactly uncommon anymore. Right. I sure. mean, when the Ninja 650 is rocking one, you got no excuse, Jixis. <laughs> you know, that's just one of those things that uh, Suzuki can definitely improve on with a lot of their models is that that LCD screen, while it is much bigger, and it does offer some more functionality than the previous generations. The, the color is something that I think uh, we're really accustomed to in the, in the current market. It does help. For the, for the sake of adding a couple of hundred bucks to the price, I think most people, if you're spending, you know, 11 and a half, 12 grand on a bike, you know, add a couple of hundred bucks and get a really nice dash. I don't think anybody would, would balk at that. But Hey, you know, I, I mean, I don't manufacture these bikes. I don't know what costs they have, but yeah, it'd be nice to see. But uh, but yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds awesome. I'm impressed with the with the quick shift side of it. Have they done anything to the suspension or the chassis? No. Um, well, technically, it, it does have new Dunlop Sportmax Road Sport two tires, which you could argue are part of the chassis. But other than that, no. The, uh, it's the same twin spar aluminum frame, uh, aluminum swing arm, uh, same KYP suspension. So you have a fully adjustable uh, fork, and then you also have a shock that's a linkage type, type shock that has a, a spring preload adjustment and rebound damping adjustment only. So that's another little area in this, uh, uh, for this bike where they are keeping those costs down. But Overall, the suspension does, I would say, a, a pretty respectable job across all departments. So when you're riding in the street, definitely soaks up a lot of the big bumps, potholes and whatnot. The only time that you're really going to feel um, 
that the suspension is sort of lacking is when you're really hammering in the canyons and you hit any of those big G out kind of compression bumps. And that sort of quickly loads and unloads the bike pretty aggressively. And I'd also, I wouldn't totally lay blame on the shock for that alone. It's this bike is older, so it is a little bit heavier. You know, it has a claimed curb weight of 472 pounds. So that is up there. Um, <clears throat> so that shock is uh, dealing with a lot of mass moving around when you're going X amount of miles an hour, um, which I will not admit publicly, and then hit one of those bumps. So yeah, but other than that, the suspension, you know, just like the, the Jixis of old does more than respectably well. I would say, you know, it's not up to snuff with the, the fancy European bits, but you're not losing out on a whole lot. And the front end feel is, is really solid. Now that kind of brings us right into the handling part of it where, and that's, that's pretty much what I like about this bike the most. I wouldn't say it's the most nimble motorcycle on the planet, but it is insanely stable. It's a very neutral handling machine. And uh, I think that's something that's going to carry out or um, we'll say, we'll say appeal to a lot of different riders from a lot of different backgrounds, sizes, and skill levels. Um, you know, it's stability in conjunction with the fact that it's a very neutral and amicable handling motorcycle. You don't have to put a lot of feedback into the handlebars to get it pointed in the right direction. And once it's on its line, it generally stays there unless you're faced with, you know, some of those big compression bumps. That's the only thing that's really going to throw it for a loop and, and a lot of the other motorcycles too. That said, those qualities are, are, are highly commendable in, in any, any context. So front end feel is nice. And, you know, the grip that you get out of the rear mechanical grip when you're getting on the gas, that's quite nice as well. Um, the Dunlop Road Mac or Sport Max Road Sport 2 tires, it's kind of a mouthful of a name now that I try to read it. I'd rate them as sort of sensibly sporty tires, definitely mileage focused based on the fact that the compound seems a bit harder. So you're probably going to get, you know, a decent amount of mileage out of them. And you're also going to have a decent amount of grip. Depends on who you are. I would probably end up leaning towards something a little bit sportier, like a Q3 plus. Um, but that's just for my type of a uh, riding that does not represent the entire market and that's here and over there some people may want to stick with the dunlop which suzuki claims is manufactured specifically for the jixis 1000 that's all well and good a lot of manufacturers will work with a tire manufacturer to make a tire that's fitted specifically for that bike but <clears throat> the tire market is vast and there are many options that will speak to many people so never let that hold you down to one exact tire Right, right, right. Does it still have the the fifty section rear tire on it, or has it gone to a fifty five yet? Uh, according to our spec sheet, it still uses a one ninety fifty. So, okay, yeah, you could go to a fifty five, and that would not only give you a little bit more edge grip, but it would also uh, improve its its handling abilities a little bit. So it would it would turn it a little bit. You have to be a bit careful with that because, you know, you can, you change the weight distribution a little bit. You put a little bit more weight on the front and you can compress the front suspension a bit. Yeah. So if anyone does that, you have to be a little bit careful, but uh, 
I know a lot of people do that. They speed up the handling just a little bit. Yeah, depends on the depends on the bike, but generally when you bump up a size in profile, not just higher width, um, you know, going from a 50 to a 55 or a 55 to a 60, like you said, you are going to be biasing that weight towards the front a little bit more and adding more weight transfer to the front. And the the fix to that is a geometry change where typically you're going to want to raise the front end. So that means choking yeah. up on those forks uh, if you have the ability to do so. Uh, most modern sport bikes uh, are usually set up from the factory to have a little bit of a range of adjustment, a handful sure. of millimeters in either direction. And that's why we have it. But yeah, when you're, when you're bumping up in the um, uh, profile sizes, you're going to have to shift geometry in a lot of cases. In certain cases, some bikes totally agree with it, and the rider may agree with it as well. So this is kind of like dieting. <laughs> it, it's a case-by-case -case scenario. Not There's not a one-size-fits-all for everything, but generally speaking, when you bump up the profile, you're going to have to make a geometry change of some kind. Sure. Okay. Um, any sort of uh, color options uh, with this new bike? Or? Yeah, so we got the Suzuki Blue, which... I would say is probably the the best option out of them. It it really just pops. Right. It is not called Suzuki Drew, uh, but Suzuki Blue. It is actually called Metallic Triton Blue. Yes. And then there is a gray option, which is Metallic Matte Mechanical Gray. <laughs> I never read that until now. That is a hilarious name. Speaking of the finishes, since we're kind of on that subject, the paint finishes are, are really nice. Uh, that's something that I, I think Suzuki has always done pretty yeah, well. Sure. Overall finish is, is good. Um, there's also a few little details like um, on these, the sort of the, the plastic runner, uh, one of the fairing bits right between the, the fuel tank and the frame. It has this textured camo, nice. well, texture to it. Uh, it doesn't really do anything from a functional perspective, but it just kind of breaks up the entire look against these really sleek paint finishes. And uh, despite not being a fan of camo on random things that don't need camo, it actually <laughs> looks pretty cool. So that's, that's a nice little touch. Um, you know, they also added all around LED lighting. The most obvious is that vertically stacked headlight. Sure. Um, we didn't ride at night but the prior generation was still using some old halogens, which right off the top, I know that LEDs are going to be far more effective. Sure. Um, then there's some, some other visual bits. I mean, the, the styling, I, I would sort of brand it as sort of, uh, you know, borderline futuristic. It's very sharp edged. They, they've pulled a couple little aerodynamic elements that the Suzuki marketing team wants to reference their recent MotoGP championship. Of course, um, but, uh, you know, realistically it's, it's its own motorcycle in a lot of ways. Um, right. So, yeah. And then if we kind of push into the direction of like seating positions and things like that, there is a little bit of a change there. But, but overall, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like quite a lot of changes, but all for the better. Um, a really, a really nice dynamic, you know, upright motorcycle. Yeah, if, if you're buying new and you want a leader naked bike, you're only going to ride on the road, then the Jixxus is something that, that should be on your short list. You know, and again, the price point is very aggressive, but just to touch on the, the upright thing that you mentioned earlier, the riding triangle 
is changed just a hair. Oh, okay. All right. Um, the seating position and uh, the seat height rather is just, just a smidge lower at 31.9 inches. Um, you know, I can get my 32 inch inseam to reach the deck easily flat footing all day. And I still have plenty of leg room. So it is a very comfortable motorcycle when you're talking about the distance from your, your feet up to the saddle, not getting a lot of knee bend. They also rolled the handlebars up and back essentially, and also widened the handlebars, not to where they're comically large. They actually give you all the leverage you'd, you'd really want for a bike of this size, in my opinion. You know, I'm at five foot, 10 inches tall, average uh, you know, arm length and leg length in that regard. So for me, I thought the bars were pretty much spot on. They did sort of roll them up and that, uh, that raised the handlebar just shy of an inch. And it also brought the handlebar a little bit closer to the rider. So you're actually propped up just that extra, um, just that extra bit. So you're, you're reducing weight off your wrists you're actually in a, a much more neutral upright riding position comparison to the previous generation. And they also have the reshaped fuel tank, which has gained a half gallon of fuel. Um, all in all, you know, using that, that fuel tank as an anchor when, when cornering, you can really dig into the bike and hang off it, do all the good stuff. That's really nice. I think going to a more streetable riding position something that's less aggressive really suits the motorcycle overall. Because again, in, in my view, this is a road focused motorcycle. So having a riding position that is more road oriented instead of these, you know, the European naked bikes are really pushing harder and harder into performance. Having something that is as versatile as the GSX S1000 in terms of your seating position, I think that fits the bill top to bottom because you're going to be riding this to work. You're going to ride it on the canyons. You might go and do the random track day every couple of years. You might take a nice long tour. You're going to be doing a lot of different types of riding and you need that sort of versatile riding position to do that. Otherwise, when you go to some of these more aggressive motorcycles, say a Tuono, um, KTM Super Duke R, something like that, in, in terms of its versatility, they're not quite comparable in that regard. They're, they're definitely aiming for different uh, approaches. But overall, sounds like you really liked it. Yeah, yeah, solid bike. Um, the, only, the only last thing we haven't touched on is the brakes, same as they were. Um, you know, you get plenty of power from those, those Brembo calipers and 310 millimeter discs up front. I'd like a little more feel, but eh they get the job done in terms of uh, just outright stopping power. So that's never an issue. If you really wanted to uh, get some more feel out of it, you could maybe upgrade that uh, axial uh, master cylinder and then bump up the brake pads and brake lines. You know, that'd be a, I don't know, maybe between three and $600 upgrade. My opinion would be well worth it, but you know, um, the brakes that it's got on it, totally solid no huge complaints there outside of just a little more feel would be nice um but wrapping it all up and bringing it home you know the the Jixus is really going after that aggressive price point and when you talk about just stopping going turning and uh remaining comfortable 
it really does sort of tick all those requirements for a, a solid road focused um, upright sport bike. So, you know, that that's Suzuki's goal here, in my opinion. And I think they've, they've done a solid job, you know, might not have the luxury options or the performance of the European competitors, but again, that's really not what this motorcycle is aiming to do. Excellent. All right. Hey, good stuff. Thanks a lot. Um, I always enjoyed the bike and I enjoyed hearing about it. In this second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey sits down at the Barber Advanced Design Center at the Barber Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, and chats with Brian Slark. He is the gentleman who, among other things, brought Norton Motorcycles to America. This is the first part of three and gives us the introduction to Brian and how he got started in motorcycling. I am with Brian Slark this morning and for the last 27 years Brian has been the technical advisor to the Barber Museum. Uh, many people know him as the man who brought Norton to America many moons ago but seeing as he's now 176 years old how many? 176. No, 84. What are you? 84. 84 year old, 84 years. Um, so I think what we're going to do today is we're going to go back to England, how he got started, how he got into motorcycles, because his whole life and career in motorcycles back in those days is extremely interesting. And then we'll probably stop there and we'll have an opportunity to do one or two more podcasts to bring us up to current day here at the Barber Museum. So, Brian. Um, Let's go back to England. Mm -hmm. And what year were you born? 1938. So you, which part of England did you grow up in? I grew up in London, South East London. I was born at Greenwich, uh, within earshot of the River Thames. Yeah. And I am a Cockney. I was born within the Sound of Bow Bells. So just to explain to the, the listeners, the correct term to be a cockney is you had to grow up had to grow up with the sound of the church bells of bow there was a big church in bow which is a district in uh, central london and if you were born within the sound of bow bells you were a cockney right and if you were born outside of that you couldn't class you were Londoner. <laughs> right and yeah. a lot of people don't know that the, no. the cockneys had a rhyming slang oh yeah that yeah. was their own sort of yeah sort of uh, language so other people can't understand what the heck they're saying. Yeah. So were you? So you would have been born a year before the Second World War Correct. broke out. Um, you'd have been very young when the war started. Did your parents evacuate to the country? Uh, my father went off to the navy. I got evacuated twice. We got bombed out. Um, wartime to me was normal life because I, I I grew up not knowing it not knowing peacetime so sirens air raids the blitz was sort of normal if it if you can call it normal you wouldn't have known anything different. no I, we just grew up uh, as a kid we used to collect shrapnel um, bags of shrapnel that was our thing and you just uh, I think you just accepted it because you didn't know any different. So, I, I just ask you that 
what I know a lot of kids in London were taken to sort of foster homes in the country to get away from the cities that were being bombed. So did, were you removed from... Yes, I went to Herefordshire and I stayed on a farm, White Cross Farm, and with my cousins and my sister. And that was coming out of London. I think that gave me the, the love of the countryside. Uh, fantastic. Everything was horses. Uh, there were women working the farm, the Women's Land Army, because all the guys had gone off to war. And I, I think that's sort of, I don't know, it gave me the, the, the love of off-road, I, I guess. I, I just love the country, the fields of cows, uh, a muddy lane, that's, that's, my, that's my habitat. But the, your parents, dad's away at war, mum stayed in London and yeah. you and your family. So yeah. this yeah. is, I mean, kids were just they, taken they, away from their family. They were put a, a, a label on you and take you down to the railroad station and put you on the train and get you out of there. What? In what? So you came back to London? Yes. And the war was still going on. We, was it because the we, Blitz was over? Uh, my dad was in the navy at Portsmouth, and he finally found us a place to live with his two little old ladies in uh, Portsmouth. And uh, I remember, I we were going to go back to London, and I picked up the newspaper for my mom. And in red letters, he said, the war in Europe is over. Wow. So we got on the train and we went back home and uh, everybody was having bonfires because it was a blackout before. And, and that was like the, the uh, I don't know, uh, a different, it was different then, you know. Um, you weren't yelled at for leaving the chink in your curtains and let light in and have to get up in the middle of the night when the siren went off and go to air raid shelter. Yeah, a different, different world. Yeah, my mother was, um, she came out of the Second World War, I think she was 18, so she would have been uh, 10 years, a teen, 10 years a teen older teen than you. Yeah. And so of course, yeah, for me growing up, we grew up as kids of the Second World War because our parents and grandparents had been through it. All of the Sunday afternoon movies were Britain re-winning the war again. So it was a really big feature even for me growing up as, you know, in the 60s, not having gone through it, but you actually were there firsthand. Mm -hmm. and so you, you feel that being out in the countryside kind of gave you this love of dirt and off-road and... But yeah, just, I still love the smell of a stable now, the smell of cows, I don't know, it just, uh, that was one of my desire to like a motorcycle to get you originally is to get me out of the city, out out into out into the, the countryside. Do you remember the first time you saw motorcycles, or if you got interested? Oh uh, yeah, um, my dad, my dad came out of the navy, and naturally he was a stranger, and uh, we had to sort of get to know each other really. So after the war, everybody was really like hungry to, to do something or see events or get back in some sort of normal life. So uh, Speedway, we went to Speedway, New Cross Speedway, and I went to Speedway and because the lights were bright and then, oh my God, the, the noise, the smell of methanol, the smell of castor oil, uh, you know, uh, bikes 
sliding around sideways. Uh, it just and all the kids they were speedway mad because every town had a speedway team, and it was it was weekly. You know, you go weekly to the speedway. What age were you then? Ten, eleven. Um, I was about eight, eight, nine. So you were early to yeah, the races. Yeah, yeah. And it was captivating, and uh, like all the kids in my neighbourhood, we were crazy about motorcycles, and we would get old magazines. I don't know where they came from, like the motorcycling and uh, motorcycle, the green one and the blue one. They were weekly magazines, and of course we looked at all the races, and we knew all the races' names, and Norton magazines were winning Grand Prix, and uh, it was an exciting time, and. Speedway was so big that we would ride our own version of Speedway on bicycles. And actually, Phillips Bicycle Company made a Speedway model, a bicycle Speedway model with high handlebars and a brace front fork. So the, the local council here, Greenwich, built a bicycle Speedway track. And it was cement straights with cinders in the corner. So you would pedal like mad and then s give some resemblance of sliding through a corner. And I did so you, that. This is not in London now, you, your dad's moved no, you. No, that's in London. Oh, you're that, back that in London. That was here at yeah. Greenwich, yeah, after the war. So I, I wasn't too keen on, on that. I got bored with that. So there were some woods by my house and a big hill, big, big steep hill. And I would take my bicycle up on the, my speedway bike with knobby tyres per se, go up the top of the hill and then I could coast down on these little muddy trails and I would visualise myself as an off-road scrambles rider and jump things and that was my... Would you have had any exposure to scrambling in those days on telly or newspaper no, or magazines? No, no, no TV, didn't have a TV. Um, when I was a teenager I sat I say go to Brands Hatch, but I'd have to get the bus, and then the bus will end up at the end of the line, and then I will walk a hitchhike about a mile and a half to Brands Hatch. And what was on the track at that time? John Surtees riding a Vincent a Grey Flash 500 single, uh, Derek Minter and Man maybe Manx Norton's uh, 250 sets. Uh, not many two-stroke, well, some Butakas. So a big bike then was a 500 season. Oh yeah, that was a big bike. And what would the championship have been, a British championship or a club race? No, they were, they were just a regular race program. You know, um, Brains Hatch had a regular program and um, I, I just had, I had to get some form of mechanisation and you couldn't get a licence till you were 16. So, I had this bicycle, I had two bikes, I had my good bike and I had this like, what I call my, my I, the term dirt bike wasn't around, it was off-road. So what I did, I, I used to do a paper route and I used to deliver milk weekends, save some money and I bought myself a little engine that bolted on my bicycle with a roller on the rear tyre. It's called a power pack and uh, 49cc. I bolted this on my bicycle and I found that if you revved the engine up and dropped the roller down, that was a way to explode the tyre. That, that wasn't a good way. So what I would do, I'd come home from school and I would 
ride around the block about four times and then get it away before any anybody ratted on me and then when it cooled down I would take off the head and barrel and I always read about decarbonizing so I would polish the piston and put it back and that was my my off-road excursion but this is also the beginning of your interest in mechanics yeah and mechanical yeah. taking so things <laughs> apart but yeah. was anybody was it because your dad was doing it or is this not really no you just this was you were you were born to yeah, be a mechanical I, you know, as a, after the war i had a meccano set and you know you put things together and uh but what really um, i mean a lot of the the girls on our street uh their boyfriends would come over on motorcycles and of course we would all gather around it and one of them was a douglas and he'd learn it on the curb and oil would drip out everywhere and we would hang around and wait for him to fire it up and then ride it off so it was exciting but uh i i i there was this this girl at school i was kind of sweet on and uh i asked if i could you know i said can i walk you home or whatever and walking down the street to a house and i looked and there was a brand new mattress motorcycle not on the stand footrest led to on the curb and it had three miles on it and that was her dad her dad was a tester at associated motorcycles and i thought this guy gets paid to ride motorcycles and this most people have never seen a new motorcycle because a new motorcycle is like a newborn baby most of the motorcycles we see are three or four or five months old in a showroom but when they're new they they smell of of rubber and cutting oil and they ping and ting and everybody the thing only had three miles everything was sort of getting into shape and a, a, a new motorcycle always i would say it's like a newborn baby not three months old and and that's well that, like you say in those days that was fantastic no one had the money for a, a brand new motorcycle i mean no. you're still talking about the men were still doing national service yeah wasn't there still rationing going oh on? yeah so oh you yeah. still weren't even able to have access to no to unrationed food because of the war so well these, these were tough times yeah once i got to 16 i i uh had to i uh, wanted to take my motorcycle license test and i had to have those awful big l plates so it's great big were you allowed a motorcycle at 16 or did you have to have a moped 16 a, a motorcycle anything vincent oh because we growing up at 16 yeah. were only allowed a 50 cc but you were allowed a full motorcycle yeah. at 16. so anyway i rode it over to the to the test place and this old guy come out with a pipe and a clipboard and he said okay asked me a few questions he said ride round the block and he said when you come up to me i'll hold my clipboard up and you stop as fast as you can and i said yes sir so i started off around the block and the damn thing quit out of his sight oh no this is terrible I this was, was the vincent no this, this is uh, uh my bicycle with my little power oh, pack oh, engine oh. on it and it quit and I thought, well, I can't pedal round. That's stupid, you know. So I pulled the plug out. That was good. And then, oh God, pulled the main jet out, and it was blocked. And I'm blowing through it. God, I'm going to lose my test. So I went in the, the closest house, knocked on the door, and I said, "Excuse me, do you have a pin or a needle?" And the, well, yeah. So I unblocked the main jet, put it back in, <laughs> rode round, 
The guy put his hand up and said, where have you been? I said, I had a little mechanical problem. And he hummed and hard. He said, okay. So he passed and he walked off. <laughs> so I took my oil plates off and threw them over a wall and rode back home. And I was riding that thing one day and in my town, there was a, a big, nice big downhill and a railroad and a traffic light. And I'm going as fast as I can, which wasn't very fast. And I got under the bridge and uh, this old lady stepped off the curb and saw me and she put her arms out, pushed, and she jumped back and I went flying down the road, you know, I mean, no protective gear on, and ended up outside Paul Dunstall's shop, like almost through the front door. <laughs> and no one looked at me and I'm bleeding and bites wrecked and they're all seen to this old lady. And the cop had said, go on, go home and, you know. So, you know, in those days, it happened, you know. So there's Paul Dunstall's shop. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's a coincidence. 156 Wellhall Road. And what's funny about that shop is when my mom left school in the 20s, that was her first job. It was a sweet shop, a candy store. And, then and, and, and they kept the candies in the cool basement. And that's where Paul Dunstall did all his tuning and stuff. So. So yeah. was he a high street motorcycle repair shop that did tuning or was he just a His tuning Paul's shop? Paul's dad was a, a greengrocer. He was a, a produce shop mm. and Paul used to ride a scooter. He was a like a mod, you know, with those scooters with a pork pie oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. antenna. And he got into the racing scene, but it, it was all, it was sort of hotbed of racing in that area. There's a lot of good racers. Uh, Colin Seedy, Paul Smart, Alan Terrell, Surtees, oh, they're all all around there, you know, and, uh, and, and and so I had to have a motorcycle, so I talked to my dad and one day we rode the tram into another town about three miles away and there was a BSA dealer, Parks of Lewisham, and uh, there was a Bantam there, 1951 125 Bantam, or 125, 125 yeah. green one with a plunger frame. And uh, my dad went in and uh, signed the signed the papers, high purchase papers. So the guy said, he gave my dad the papers. Okay, there it is. They didn't have keys. There's no keys, no locks, no nothing. Didn't show me anything about it and I'm in London traffic Saturday afternoon and I got on the Bantam. Did they have three speeds or four? Yeah, three, three speeds. On the right hand side. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, off I went, rode it home in my raincoat and <laughs> nothing. I mean, just, you know. That was what you did in those days, and right? And then, first thing I did in my, in my being a smart kid, I went down to the local auto parts and uh, bought a uh, megaphone exhaust, took the nice pear-shaped muffler off and put a noise exhaust on it, that's the first thing, you had to do that. And then I would, I would ride it everywhere, ride it, I'd take it off-road, get in muddy lanes. But they made uh, scrambles out of those, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I rode the wheels off of that thing and uh, I'd just go out with a couple of shillings in my pocket for gas and that was my freedom machine. And Were you still in school at the time or did you go to university mm -hmm. or did you go straight to work? No, I, I was working in a, 
working in a garage. My dad found me a job when I left school. I left school on a Friday and went to work Monday. As a mechanic? Yeah, so as an apprentice mechanic, yeah. yeah. What were you working on? Heavy trucks. Interesting, it wasn't motorcycles, it was trucks. No, it, no. motorcycle shops. Um, in those days, most people did their own. Never, I, uh, we never, I mean, we couldn't afford to have a motorcycle as a shop. You, you know, you, you had to do it yourself. So how long did you spend as a truck mechanic? Well, before I got called up, National Service, went in the Air Force, RAF. So you had to do two years of National yeah. Service, yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, you're single guys, all the same age. Um, they gave us a Nissan Art Concept Hut as a motorcycle club. And uh, if we were on a night flying exercise, we'd go out. I was in Suffolk in the country, and we would go out and, and ride all day. We'd just ride, uh, about four or five of us would ride. And, and were you on the Bantam then, or did you change No, I, I, what I did, uh, my off-road deal, um, I sold the Bantam, and I, I traded, we were traded like around with each other. I got a 1937 uh, Mattress 250 single, single port, had open valve gear, and someone had put uh, ex-army Mattress telescopic forks on it, and it had an alloy, polished alloy gas tank. So I was a hooligan on it, and I would look for BSA 250s, and I would only shift when the valves floated, and that thing was wonderful. That's wonderful, and I would go, you could go to Brands Hatch, and before they had the long circuit, that was all, that was a scrambles track and, and wood, so I would ride it, but when I would get in some mud and stuff, I'll get mud in the open valve spring, so I had to get a stick and poke it out, so the valves were closed, open to close. So that wasn't good, so I found an ex-army matchless engine, I think I paid two pounds for it, and I stuck that in a 350. And uh, I entered a lot of trials, local trials, and everybody rode their road back, no one used any, any trailers. And uh, I needed something better, for trial, so there's a little magazine coming out, Southeastern Centre magazine, and there was a James, it was a 1953 James 197. It was a three speed with a big out, big brass flywheel and a rigid frame. It, I, I bet it didn't weigh 180 pounds, and uh, little five inch brakes, it's useless. And I rode that in a lot of trials, I would ride ride down, ride the trial, ride back. And uh, then when I went in the Air Force, I was used it to commute home some weekends and it wasn't big enough. So I went to Comerford's who was a big off-road sporting dealer in London and I traded the James in and I got a 53 matches, 350 trials bike, a real, a real trials bike. And uh, it had no light so I got a battery carrier and I had a battery and I fixed up some headlight, tail light, and uh, they were just like total loss. I would have to charge a battery. And, and I used that and uh, that was my 
my off-road. Was there any type of MOT back then? Or no. Or, no, no, I mean, no, you just bought something you and just rode did the something thing. Rode it. And, uh, you had a license plate on it though. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I was out riding it one day, Saturdays we were practice in this, in this old gravel pit and I was riding and I come up and we would get the front wheel off the ground, maybe a foot, but we thought we were hot and it came down very softly softer softer and then I went over the handlebars and the frame had broken the down tube had just broken so I had to get home about three miles so I think we got an old piece of wood a branch and some wire and I wired the frame up and rode it home gingerly <laughs> and then when I got home <laughs> I, I took it apart which didn't take half an hour because it's spindly things and I took the frame with me on the bus I carried it on the bus and put it in the little place where you put your luggage and I went to John Surti, opposite John Surti's shop was a motorcycle shop that did repairs and I said can you fix this and he said yeah come back next Saturday so went back next Saturday all repaired and painted it reinforced and I paid 30 shillings <laughs> so I put it all back again but you, you if you didn't if you d couldn't do it yourself someone knew someone that did. could do it yeah. so uh, you know rudimentary no no real tools you know so how did you transition from so were you a mechanic in the air force or a pilot or yeah i was an airframe mechanic so you've now had a number of years of mechanical experience yeah, yeah I, I i worked on airframes uh pneumatics oleomatics stuff yeah just picked it up so you come out of the air force yeah how do you get from here to your career in the motorcycle industry was there a long road from there well uh i went to work for joe francis who was an old motorcycle racer in his workshop and uh i needed a better trials bike so i sold my matches and i went to john surty's shop and i, I bought a greaves a new greaves 200 plus 200 pound and a beautiful bike and uh, I had that and I, I was riding. Did you have a car at all at this point? Pardon? Did you have a car at this point? No. No, just no. motorcycle only. And uh, I was riding in a, a trial and they had a special test. They always have a special test to avoid, a, it's a tiebreaker. And this one was a time lap of Canada Heights motocross track. So when it was my turn to do it I went a bit berserk I know one time I had both legs on one side of the bike and I ended up to get the fastest time around there on my trials bike so all my mates they said well why don't you enter a scramble there ride the motocross I said yeah that's a good idea so they talked me into it so I uh, I rode my bike out there I took the lights off and had some number plates on it and I rode I rode it with my tr my trials bike with wide ratio gears, and uh, I got the taste of it. So, I I at that time I we would go when we were kids we would go down to Associated Motorcycles, known as Collie as people called it, and we saw this dirty old factory, noisy, and we would see out the back these gorgeous bikes coming out lining up in the street ready for testing and we would hang around there oh it's wonderful so one day i went i rode down on my bike i had my barber suit on 
and I went in the employment office and I said, uh, you know, and the guy said, oh, son, looking for a job? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, wait there. And uh, I sat in the office and this guy came in and it was Hugh Viney and he was a competition manager and he was a captain of the International Six Days Trials team. He was like one of the top guys in the country. And he said to me, had a pipe in his mouth, he said, well, son, do you want to ride motorbikes? Yes, sir. <laughs> so I started AMC, and a menial task, and uh, sort of uh, did a little rectification. They called rectifiers, rectification on bike on the new bikes in the test shop, and then I got to be a runner-up. And, and a, a runner-up is two two guys. There's a bay and you would take a brand new motorcycle that had oil and gas on it and you back it up to this extractor van fan, and you would kick it, brand new, kick it over, we do that. That's good exercise of the day and make sure the brakes work, make sure the oil was circulating and you put it down in the street for testing. And I and did that. that. Job. Yep, and then one day the foreman said to me, come with me, okay, go down so you get on that bike. No helmet, yeah, no glove. Okay, he got on the back of me. He said, ride me, ride me around. So I ride you around. He said, all right, you're a tester. And uh, I was 20, I was the youngest tester. <laughs> and you did about 11 singles or nine twins a day. And you could go anywhere you want. You know, there's no set route. I used to put about 15 miles on them. And uh, one of the good things is, you got a, a bike to take home every night and weekend, because they get a bike free, a tested for free, but you get a what they call a tea bike. You take it home for tea. And of course, it's putting more miles on it if there's any problems yeah. to identify. Yeah. It's a perk of the job. So, uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I was motocrossing then, and my uh, my local local greaves dealer was Colin Seeley, and he rode crazy scrambles and he was over here a couple of years ago and he he had some results i said god that's the only time colin i ever beat you but I, yeah and uh, by that time i graduated and i'd swapped degrees i had a bsa gold star i couldn't ride the matches it was too high too high for me uh didn't suit me so i had a couple of gold stars and i rode those and uh, i was very fortunate to do pretty well and I, I got expert status, which meant I got free entries and I actually won some prize money. So that was a bonus. And you're still working at the... Yeah. 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 And then, then they, uh, the guys, then I got moved, finally moved me over to the race shop. And one end of the race shop is where we did the competition bikes. We did the factory trials bikes motocross, scrambles bikes, motocross and the ISDT bikes and uh, I, was, I was doing pretty good so the guys built me a good motor which I would take out pieces of every night in my backpack and uh, it was a good 500, it was a 560 so it's it a good 500 and uh, I used that and did some motocross in me that so life is good life is good life is good and during the winter th there's a lot of australia and new zealand guys would come over for two or three years to write to ride a race 
and in the winter they will work at the factory. I mean, there was Mike Duff, uh, uh, just a lot of guys, Peter Pawson. These guys, uh, be called the colonial guys, would work at the factory in the winter so they could steal enough stuff to keep it running during the summer, where they would go to Europe, they'd go to France, Belgium and make money. And what was the brand of bike? Pardon? What was the brand? Well, they, they would ride matches because they could, they could stuck up on spare parts out the back door. And uh, I got, we all ran around together and they married local girls. So AMC was, his best years were over. The best years were 59 and 60, but then it was getting like downhill and there was talk of a four day week. And they said, why don't you go to Australia? And I said, yeah, a lot of people are emigrating and you could go for, for 10 pounds. And I thought about that. And then suddenly my life changed. And uh, it's funny, Bud Eakins used to ride matches for Cooper Motors and uh, he would come to the factory and see the guys and come in the comp shop and got talking. And he would come over for the six days trials and being a desert racer, they called him the Desert Fox. Being a racer, he, he rode in sand and uh, to get him, get sort of acclimate, uh, acclimated to muddy conditions, I would loan him my bike and say, hey, you ride it in this event, and, you know. So went to a Christmas party and there was a lot of scotch involved. And he said, why don't you just come over? Mr. Casual, just come over. Come over and do some desert riding. Do some desert racing. I said, oh, I said, oh but that's like going to the moon, you know, and it's all about it, it's all about it. And uh, I said, yeah, I've got nothing to lose. I've always wanted to try as a, you know, hey, if it doesn't work, you can always go back. But you could never say, my dad always regretted not doing things. Yeah. You know, so I said, yeah, so. I sold my, I had a van then, a Thames van, like everybody did, sold the van, sold my bike. Got tickets to Los Angeles, got on the big plane, arrived at LA, no one there, hot, I had an English wool suit on, no money, no American money, uh, didn't know I'd use the phone anyway. And I'm standing out on the curb. God, it's like being on the moon, you know, everything was strange, palm trees, jet fuel. And then a bud showed up with another English friend of mine. Get it? I always remember the first meal we had with the, the Chinese food in these little white boxes that we drove through to get it. Because there was no fast food in England then, only a wimpy bar. Right, which you know, that was the only good. thing. I mean, this is, and everything was so new. What strange. Year, what year was this? Do you remember? 64. Okay, so basically we've sort of taken you through growing up, going through the war and getting to here. So when you came on this first trip to Los Angeles to meet with Buddy, did you ever go back to England again? Yeah. So you didn't stay this time? Stayed for a year. Desert racing? Mm -hmm. doing Mainly desert racing. Um, motocross was just coming in, but mainly desert racing. Uh, I had a TR6, 57, big desert sled. Man, nearly killed me, did endos with it, terrible. 
How were you supporting yourself? Working as a mechanic? Yeah, working hundred dollars a week. How much? Hundred a week. In a dealership or? Yeah. And yeah. what were and the bikes you were working on? Uh, well, a lot of Triumphs because I was familiar with the Triumphs and I was exposed to Hondas. Never, I had no, you know, no idea about Hondas. And uh, so I thought, well, working the Hondas is a piece of cake, you know. I mean, you can whip those, see, I mean, easy, line up the dots, they run, you know. And uh, yeah, the racing, so got in, Bud was, Bud's house was an open, open door and people would pop in like Keenan Wynn and Pernell Roberts and McQueen and guys, Roger DeCosta might be sleeping on the couch when they get up in the morning. Um, it was it was like an open house. So what was it like for you for a kid to see Steve McQueen come rocking in? I mean, he come up to me. He come up to me. And said, "Hey, I'm Steve. I ride motorcycles too." So you just didn't ever think anything too no, much. No, and then uh, like in the dealership, Bobby Darren used to come in. I I told him to ride a motorcycle. He was hopeless. He couldn't use a clutch. I had him on a Honda S90. And he finally, finally got the hang of it. So then he buys the, the most expensive bike in the world, then R69S, you know. And uh, the Osmonds used to come in the shop, um, Sandra D. It was like, it was, <laughs> it was like fantasy world, you know. Especially when a kid from London that was yeah. up in the Blitz. I mean, yeah. you must have well, thought Well, Bud had this, had this uh, big, Oh, Jessie, she was African-American, and she would cook and cook all this food and leave it out. She'd leave, and guys would just drop in, and Bud would order scotch and do the... Uh, it, it, it must, I mean... It's crazy. Crazy. So putting back to girlfriend in London, you know, you're growing up in houses with no heat. Yeah, so I grew up in the council house, you know. The toilets are outside. Yeah, and, and Bud was like... And here you are in the showers, I'm in, hot I'm water. I'm in Laurel, Laurel Canyon, and like, yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy and uh, what made carefree you days. What was, why did you, after the year, did you go back to England? Um, I was, my first wife, she was pregnant, she wanted to have a baby at home. Uh, I was at, after a while, a guy gave me a CZ to ride, a twin port, and I really liked it. God, it was nice. And uh, I didn't realize at the time in the 60s of the strong anti-communism in America. And I got a lot of comments about Writing it. So Nick Nicholson, who's the, the Greaves importer in North Hollywood, he said, why don't you get off that damn commie motorcycle and I'll give you a good bike to ride. So he gave me Greaves. And he, I got a free ride, you know, and uh, rode the Greaves, did pretty good. And um, he said, hey, I want a team, uh, we should all go to the ISDTs. So, <laughs> uh, his wife gave me a piggy bank and saved up and uh, went back to England and uh, rode the ISDT, which is a big milestone in my life. That was pretty cool. Getting to compete at that level. Pardon? Went getting to compete at that yeah, level. Yeah, you know, and, and like the Olympics of motorcycling, you know, and uh, that, was, that was cool. 
So you're back in England doing the ISDT. Is he racing back wrenching? I'm assuming. Um, I went back. Oh, what happened? I I went to go back to AMC, and everybody was terrified. It'll be. One guy said he thought I was uh, spying for Honda, <laughs> which is a joke. I mean, you know, God. Um, and it was the wettest, nastiest, coldest winter. Oh, it was awful. And I thought, you know what? I could be in Southern California. And what am I doing here? Right. So I went back to LA, and uh, I'd already had I had an El Camino. I had a Ranchero, a '58 Ranchero that my friend was looking after. So I had a car. Went back, got an apartment again, and uh, no, rented the house with a garage, and then. There was an ad for an opening at the, the BSA distributorship. It factory owned. It's owned by the BSA parent factory in England. It's BSA a Triumph, big building. BSA one door, a Triumph, the other door, back same. So I was a, I was assistant service manager for BSA for the 17 Western states, and uh, and then the three cylinder came out the uh, the Rocket 3, so I was going to be the service instructor. They sent a guy over from England to show me how to how to show people how to work on this damn Rocket 3. So, so you never went back to live in England again after that? That was the second trip back yeah. to America yeah. when you decided to settle? Yeah, and I didn't go back for 30 odd years. Well, you know what, Brian? There's so much to unpack here, and even in this first segment, what I'd like to do is leave us here when okay. you, you've got to America. This is, I went there in 1966 to BSA, so that's the timeline. Yeah, so we've started 1938, born in London, gone through the First World War, we've been through your history here. I think if we stop here, then if you'll be so kind as to come back next time, we can start in America, because this is a new era now with Definitely. As, as we say in life, I turn the page. Turn the page. Well, it's a great point. Brian, thank you for joining us here today. Brian Slark, um, giving us some of the early years growing up in London, his introduction to motorcycles and how you came to America. And I look forward next time to sit down to find out this amazing life you had inside America before you then turned the page again and came here to Barber. My pleasure. Thank you, sir.